the long weekend and the summer holidays. <laughs> right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 2 so long. I have no funny stories today, nothing exciting to share. It's been a very quiet week. <laughs> um, just some news from our side. So myself and Lynette and the kids will be traveling to Lloyd and Cass in the Philippines next week, Friday, for a few days. Um, so you'll be in the capable hands of Yohandre, Imeralda, and Dan and Nicole. Um, everyone there for two weeks. Uh, they'll look after you. If you have any complaints, prayer concerns, anything like that, please come speak to them. Please don't contact me. <laughs> Just teasing. <laughs> um, so we will be with Lloyd and Katz. So we, Lloyd and Katz uh, planted out from Rivers five years ago. So we are actually, they've asked us to come and invited us to spend their fifth anniversary with them in planting the church there. And so it's been a tumultuous journey for them, but a good one. Um, I was just really encouraged going there last year and just seeing how God has grown them and developed them and matured them and how confident they lead that church in that community in Compostela and uh, the Philippines. So if they can please keep us in prayer. Uh, apparently it's the rainy season, so that's going to be fun. Um, possible typhoons, mudslides, earthquakes, volcanoes, you know, just all the exciting things. So please keep us in prayer. Um, I come from South Africa where we don't have those things. <laughs> so please, yeah. Anyway, so that's, um, so if you can keep us in prayer for that, that'd be fantastic. All right. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read from Revelation 2, verse 8 to 11. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, as Johanna said, we are looking at the seven churches of Revelation. And this week, we're looking at the second church. We're looking at the church of Smyrna. And just some context and some background. So this portion, uh, Revelation was written by John in roughly AD 90-ish. Um, so 90 years after Jesus died, um, sorry, after Jesus was born, um, and he had been captured, uh, English is just escaping me this morning, he had been sent off to an island of Patmos, one of the Greek islands, uh, he was there in jail, he was in exile, that's the word I was looking for, exile in Patmos, um, he, at this point, many scholars believe that he had already been, uh, he was one of the last remaining uh, disciples at this point, and at this point he had been persecuted tremendously, and that many believe that he at this point had been boiled alive to the point of almost death, and so on Patmos, you can imagine he was scarred, burnt, bandaged, and in a lot of pain, and in jail all at once, and then he receives this revelation that we read this morning, and so this was a letter that Jesus sends to the churches, the seven churches. These were existing churches. Now, we spoke about last week how these, these letters were written for a church that existed in that time. It was a letter that is relevant for churches throughout history, and it's a relevant letter for today in every church as well. And so it's, it's an, well, it was a present letter. It was something for the current church. It was something that was a foretelling of what is going to happen, but then also something that is relevant to us today. So it's, it's an incredible portion and rich portion, portion of Scripture. Um, just as I said last week as well, is I want to encourage you as we go through the seven churches to spend time reading the scripture. It's two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3. I encourage you to read the first chapter as well because that lays a bit of a foundation. Um, and to study this on your own as well or with your family or with your, uh, your friends. Talk about it, engage in conversation around it. There is so much in this that we can learn for ourselves. And so I want to encourage you to, read, to do that. Make your way through it listen to the podcast, uh, the sermons that we put on the podcast, and 
to read through it, study it, meditate on it, allow the scriptures to captivate your hearts, allow the scriptures to me- allow your mind to meditate on the scriptures and to ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you are trying to teach me through this? Because we can teach you, we can help you, but we are not responsible for your walk with God. That is up to each and every single one of us. All right, we have to take that responsibility for ourselves. We've got to read the word ourselves. All right, okay. On that note, let's pray and then we'll read. So Father, we thank you that we get to look at your word this morning. We thank you that we get to come together and we get to do the public reading of scripture, which is something that you told us to do. We pray, Father, that as we do this and as we study your word and we look at it, that you, Holy Spirit, can reveal things to us in our hearts and our minds that we need to look at. I pray, Lord, that this would be, the seed would land in fertile soil and that it would bear much fruit. We bless you and give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Revelation 2, verse 8 to 11 says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of, says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So last week, we kicked off our journey looking at the seven churches by looking at the church in Ephesus, um, the Ephesian church. As you'll know, they had a letter from Paul in the Bible, as well as the Corinthian church and a few others. Um, And this Ephesian church was a very energetic church. They were doing a lot of good things around them within the church and within the community. They were strong in the word. They served each other with love. And they also served the community around them. They were well known within the Ephesian church. Uh, the Ephesian community. They were mature enough to know how to test the scriptures, how to test those that came in declaring themselves apostles or teachers, and they were able to recognize false teaching. But, as we saw last week, Jesus says, you've lost your first love. They were doing all these things in their own strength and not from a place of their first love with Christ. Their love for God was unchanged. Sorry, was changed. Everything we do, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, has to come from a place of love. Without love, what we do is, unfortunately, very much meaningless. And so our first love is vital for everything we do. Everything we do, the acts of service, the way we love, the way we we prophesy, the way we do all these things, has to come from a place of love first. And as we looked at the Ephesian church, we saw that there's this call to come back to our first love. If you don't know what your first love is, as I mentioned last week, it's when you smile at your phone stupidly because you decided to read a message from someone. It's when you can't hang up and you just want to talk to a person. It's when you want to share news with that person first thing. It's like, ah, you won't believe what happened. It's when you can't get enough of that person. That is your first love. And that is the love that we are called to in our relationship with the Father. (coughs) So as we go through these portions of Scripture, I want... As I mentioned last week, there's four things I want us to look at and to answer. One is, what is Jesus saying, both to this church, both to the church at last, but then also, what is Jesus saying to me? 
The second thing is, what is true of my life? What is it that the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal to me? The third thing is, what do I need to change or what do I need to do in my life from what I'm reading? And the last thing is, what can I do to encourage others around me in what I've learned? And so it's so important that when we read Scripture, we do not just read Scripture for ourselves, but we read Scripture to help each other. That's what we are here for. We're here to encourage and to build up one another in love through the scriptures, through coming together, through discipleship, through accountability. And so I want to encourage you with that. Yeah. So the church in Smyrna, I'm probably saying that wrong, and I apologize to anyone who might not have it there correctly. This was a city that was about 35 miles north of the Ephesian church. Um, it was known to be a destination city. So if you think of cities like modern-day Paris, London, Rome, New York, it was a place where people wanted to go. It was a tourist destination of the time. People traveled here for the beautiful scenery. It was a bustling city, and it was a place known as for having a luxurious life. People there were wealthy, they spent money, and they spent time making the city look beautiful and attractive to those around them. Today, the city is still alive. It is known as Izmir in Turkey. Um, and you can still go and visit this place. It's one of the only, it is the only church out of the seven where the city still exists today. Other than that, there's no mention of this church within the, the, in Scripture, but it is believed that Paul founded this church during his ministry in Ephesus. Another thing with the city is that they were strong in what was called Caesar worship. At this point, Caesar was heading over the whole of the region, and at this point, they passed a law that for any place of worship, Caesar had to be recognized as God first. Then the rest of the religious practice could be taken. This was not just for Christians. This was for every person of every religion. So the Temple of Diana that we looked at last week, the Nicol Nicolaitans, all of them had to declare Caesar as God first. And so Smyrna was known as the crown of Asia because they aligned strongly with the Roman Empire at this time. And so... The Romans put a lot of money into it. It was a place that had a lot of money. It was a place where people wanted to go and to travel. And so you can imagine the church there was under a lot of persecution because obviously they were not going to declare Caesar as God first. <coughs> and this is, from what I understand, also why John had been exiled because he fought back against this declaration of Caesar as God. And so we go back to the scripture and it says, and the angel of the church of Smyrna, we, we learned last week that the angel means a person who oversees the church, a messenger who communicates on behalf of the church. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I'm going to try something new here. I want you to repeat after me. Say, I know. Okay, it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Okay, you don't say all of it, sorry. <laughs> Just a little bit, but I know. The declaration of saying, God saying, I know, I see. I don't just know you, I see you, I hear you, I'm with you. And he says, I know of your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they're Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The next thing, repeat, do not fear. So Jesus says, I know, and then he says, do not fear. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
and the one who conquers will not be hurt by a second death. We saw last week that there's generally a pattern of seven things that comes through in each of these letters. The first one is there's a command that the letter must be written. Then there's a description of Jesus that normally comes from Revelation 1, verse 1 to 20. There's a word of commendation. But there's two things missing from the seven, list of seven. One is this church does not receive criticism from God. They receive a commendation and they get an exhortation, but there's no criticism. There's also no call to repentance. They get encouraged. They, Jesus says, this is what's going to happen, but I encourage you. Then there's an appeal that the message should be heard. And then there's a promise to those who overcome. And so this church in Smyrna, um, how many words jump ahead in my notes here? So the, the word Smyrna, the more you say it, the worse it sounds. Smyrna, um, <laughs> it was a church that, if you look at the name of the church, actually originates from the Hebrew word for myrrh. And myrrh was a fragrance that was used among the living and the dead. Um, but it was most po- its most popular use was in embalming those who had passed away. This, w- uh, this myrrh was a resin that was luxurious. It was expensive for those who were living and was used as a perfume. But it was mostly used in the anointing oil of priests and of kings. And so those who were really lofty would often use myrrh to fragrance themselves. But most biblical references to this is used during burial. And this is what it was, it was known as the fragrance of death. The Smyrna was a place of spiritual death, both figuratively and literally and spiritually. Persecution of the church in Smyrna was at its highest. And so it's quite interesting that Jesus starts this letter with saying, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. You see, in Revelation 1 verse 17 and 18, it says, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And the keys of death and Hades I have taken. And so when Jesus says to the church that is living in a city that looks alive and bustling, but it's dirt and dead, he says, I am the first and the last. I died and came to life. For a city that was named after the fragrance of death, Jesus says, I am alive. He declares life over them. Isaiah 41 verse 4 says, He who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And so he reminds them firstly that their lives are marked, their lives are protected, their lives are boundaried by him. I am the first and the last. I am he. This church was suffering, but Jesus was there at the beginning of their foundation. And he will be with them to the end, and he's there with them in their story. In the introduction, Jesus declares he is the first and the last. He sets the boundaries. If you look at Isaiah 41, it talks about how he sets your coming and your going, sets the boundaries of your life. Then he says that the city of spiritual death is acknowledged by the king who defeated death and came back to life. He's reminding them that the power of death has been broken and that he has come to give life. We see in John 10, 10, where the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. And so what he's saying to this church is that you may be facing death, 
if we go on these two things about persecution and trials. But Jesus reminds us that he has come to bring life and life in abundance. And he's telling them to stay faithful. He says, stay faithful unto death. And so he gives them this commendation. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they're Jews but are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear that you are about to be spilled through. So Jesus affirms this church. He says, I know your tribulation and poverty. I know the slander that's against you. And so as I mentioned, there's no criticism. There's just this commendation. Jesus saying, I know. I know that you've been faithful. I know that you're going through these things. This church was faithful in every way, even in the face of tremendous tribulation, poverty, and slander. This church was different from what we saw in the Ephesian church in that they had held onto their first love. They were doing all those things that they were told to do. And they held onto their first love in the midst of it all. They, this church faced extreme difficulty and suffering. And Jesus acknowledges them and reminds them that he sees them. In a city that was known for its beauty and its luxury and its liberty, this church faced a lot of oppression. Historians believe that the church in Smyrna faced persecutions that were sponsored and encouraged by affluent Jewish community within the city. So what would happen is the Jewish community was obviously against these new Christians that were themselves the way. And they made life difficult for them by encouraging others to do the same. Businesses were boycotted, jobs were taken away, refusal to buy or sell to Christians. Christians were thrown into jail by false accusations and so on. And so this sounds pretty much like a really bad movie of Mean Girls, like horrible. But what happened is the Jews were trying to persecute this church to destroy them. It wasn't the Romans, funny enough, it was the Jews because they declared that Jesus was the Messiah. And that went against what the Jewish community at that time believed. And so just like the Jewish community that, that persecuted Jesus and declared him to be hung on a cross for us to die, was the same Jewish community that was coming against Christians and wanting them to be persecuted and oppressed within the city. But Jesus says to them, I see you. I am with you. <coughs> and I know this is supposed to be more of a teaching message, but I think it would be amiss to look over the fact that there are so many of us today that are going through trials and tribulations and slander. Some of us are going through hardships in our homes. Some of us are getting persecuted by colleagues. Some of us are outcasts with our families. There's so many things that we go through, and some of us are going through those things today, and it's difficult and it's hard. There are false allegations, there are tribulations. And all of us will continue to face these things and many other things that will come. One of the things that my father-in-law, Mario, says, and has said to me quite often, is that as Christians, one of the things we forget to look at in theology is that we have to have a theology of suffering. And it's difficult, and it's not nice. No one wants to believe that they're going to have to suffer and go through these intense things and face over and over different trials and persecutions and things that are going to come. But James 1 verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, both in a very encouraging scripture and both very challenging, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, James very cleverly says, doesn't say if you face persecution. He says when you face persecution or trials, count it all joy. We do not go through these things to get broken and battered and beaten up and then just left to rot on the side of the road. No, these things happen to produce something in us. While these things are not from God, God uses these things to work something in us, to turn something in in us. And it says that when you go through these things, this testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The steadfastness, let it have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And the next scripture says, if you are lacking in wisdom, ask and he will give it to you without reproach or reprimand. And so it's this invitation to dig into the Father, to say, Father, I need you. Uh, one of the scriptures, and uh, sorry, I'm probably going to steal this from the handbook when he preaches in two weeks' time, but one of the scriptures we often say is, God will never give me more than I can handle. I'd like to say that's a lie. Imagine if we weren't given things, that, if we were only given things that we can handle, we would not need God. We would not need him in our lives. We would not need his guidance because we'd be able to do it in our own strength. But the Bible's pretty clear that we can do nothing but have him. It is with him that we make it through these things. We will face trials and tribulations that are greater than us, that are much bigger than us, that are coming and pushing on us, but we have the Father. The reality is that we will face tribulation. We will be put in situations that are bigger than us. We will face persecution against our character and our families in various ways that will hurt and break us. We will have trials that will test every ounce of strength and willpower and resolve that we have. It will come from the enemy, virtually, it will come from colleagues, it might come from family, it might come from friends, it might even come from those that we love the most. Sometimes it even comes through our own silly decisions and circumstances we put ourselves in. But we are still named as his children. You see, the church in Smyrna, this is something we can learn from them, is that in the midst of all these things, they were faithful. They were faithful. They did not swerve from left or right. They did not allow doctrine into the church that made them feel good and pretty because they were going through trials and tribulations. No, they kept true to the gospel, preaching Jesus. See, when the enemy couldn't get them distracted, they still, sorry, the enemy could not get them distracted because they kept their eyes on their first love. They looked to Jesus. I think so often we think that coming to Jesus, he's going to take all our things away, and all the persecution, the trials, we pray, and it's like, God, just relieve me of this. No, he, Jesus did not come to do that. He did not say to the church in Smyrna, I see you going through these things, and I'm going to rescue you. No, he says, I see you, I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to help you through this. I'm not going to take you around the storm, I'm not take you over the storm, I'm going to take you through the storm. And he leads us, and he guides us. Psalm 23 says, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when you walk in through it, he creates a space for you. He presents a table for us where we can have relationship and encounter with him. And it's so important. And he's, the church in Smyrna would have known this. They would have known, hey, there's no way around this and no way over it. But with Jesus, we can make it through. And then he says to them, do 
do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so the biggest question to ask is, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What is it, if you sift through all the things that you might say, I'm scared of spiders, I'm scared of snakes, I'm scared of the dark, I'm scared of this. I'm scared of financial ruin. I'm scared of reputation being destroyed. As you dig deeper and deeper, the ultimate thing that most of us are afraid of is death. That is honestly probably the worst thing anyone can do to us. It's the worst thing that can happen to us. It's quite funny, except for public speaking. <laughs> they say the two things that people fear the most, death and public speaking. And so the joke is that the person doing the obituary at a funeral is the person that's more scared than the person that has died. <laughs> Sorry, that was just being completely out of line. Um, <laughs> but what are you afraid of? What are the things that is holding you back? What is your deepest fear? What is the worst thing that can happen? This is not to nullify or invalidate what you're going through, but it's like, God, what is my biggest fear? What is the thing that I'm going through? What is it that I fear the outcome of this? See, Jesus reminds them and us right at the beginning that he has conquered death. The enemy may take our earthly bodies. He may try and ruin our reputations. But our souls will live in eternity with him if we believe in him and accept him as our Lord and Savior. If we can rely on the fact that he has conquered death, that he has taken everything that we go through unto himself, we can be free from fear. Imagine a church that is free from fear. Say, you know what, the enemy, the worst thing that you can do is take my life. But that's okay because Jesus beat that evil. And I will live for eternity with him. We've got to move our focus from this earthly mentality to one that is an eternity mentality. Saying, what we have here is temporary, and I'm going to get that to that later, but what I have with the Father is forever. We need to be free from this fear. Knowing that Jesus is in our corner. This is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Jesus knows your tribulation. I know for myself, and I'm probably the only person in this room, that the, when I've gone through really painful things and really difficult things, I often feel like I'm all alone and I want Jesus' help. But I encourage you, if that's you this morning, that Jesus sees he sees your pain, he hears your prayers, and he responds to your cries for help. Interestingly enough, this word tribulation is the Greek word lipsos, which means pressure. Not just any ordinary kind of pressure, like it's not like a put your finger on something kind of pressure. This is a crushing kind of pressure. And so it's just when they would teach this um, in the Greek schools, I guess, back in the day, the image that was often used was of a man lying on the floor with this massive boulder on his chest. It's that kind of weighty, crushing pressure where you can't move, where this boulder is crushing you now. If you've ever had anxiety, that's what it feels like, that kind of weight in your chest, crushing kind of pressure. But then Jesus said, but Jesus says he knows this crushing pressure. He's not just saying that I know and I see you. He says that I'm and he tells us that he knows all about this ellipsis kind of pressure, this crushing pressure. 
He knows what it feels like to have crushing pressure on him. In Isaiah, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. And it's the same word, Philip, that is used there. <coughs> and so, Jesus knows. He doesn't just say, I see you. He doesn't just say, I hear you. He says, I know what you are going through. The good news is that because He knows all about it, I can trust Him when He makes a promise that is not some pretty Christian pretty Christian cliche, but it is from his experience of victory over this crushing pressure that I can rely on the promises that he says for those who conquer, because he has conquered. An example of this to help you understand is I've got three kids, if you didn't know, and oftentimes they've they've got various strengths. If something's going to be adventurous, Charlie will do it first. If someone's going to try new food, Adam's going to try it first. If someone's going to do something blindly, Ethan's going to do it first. And so it's quite funny to see, like, the simple thing, like, um, we were in the pool yesterday, and Ethan's like, Dad, I want you to throw me as high as you can into the pool. He will do it, because he has no concept of what could happen. He doesn't really care. For him, it's just fun. Charlie will never do it. Not a chance. Adam will want to do it, but then doesn't realize that he weighs almost 50 kgs, and so it's a little bit more difficult, and he won't get as high. And there's always this nervousness when we first started doing this with them. And Ethan was like, I will do it. I will go first. Adam didn't want to do it. Charlie was not keen. And that first throw of throwing Ethan in and seeing the joy and the laughter, the other two, it's like, was that fun, Ethan? What was that like? And Ethan, in his joy and his excitement, was like, ah, let's do it again. This is the best thing ever. And he encouraged them. He said, I've been through this. I know what it's like. It's going to be good for you. He had conquered the fear and the anxiety and the unknown. And that's what Jesus did for us in this situation. He has conquered the unknown. He has beaten the fear and the anxiety and this thing that of the unknown of what might happen. What is the worst that could happen? And because of his experience, we can look to him and he says, I promise you, you will make it through. I promise you that you can be more than a conqueror because I have conquered this for you. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, um, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me read that again. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Basically what that means is Jesus has been through it. He has felt that pressure. He has felt the crushing pressure. He has felt the trials and the tribulations and the slander that we go through. I don't know if you've read the Bible, but Jesus was slandered and persecuted to death. He knows what it's like to be tried. He knows what it's like to have false accusations against him. He knows what it's like to go through these things. And so when we come to the Father, we don't just find someone with experience. We find someone with sympathy. Someone who understands and knows what we need in this moment. And so with this, we have confidence that we can draw near to him, his throne of grace. And in that place, we find mercy and grace to help in time of need. We don't just get to go through these trials and tribulations and try and figure it out by ourselves. No, we can come to the throne of 
We have a high priest who has felt everything we feel, and he knows your purpose. In 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, 7 to 18, I'm just going to read some of the stuff here. Um, it says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of the in the body death the death of Jesus so that the life may also be manifested in our own lives for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh so death as it were is at work in us but life in you and we're going to jump ahead it says so we do not lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this life's momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We used to sing a song, I think. Impressed but not crushed, persecuted not abandoned down but not destroyed and blessed beyond the first will come to enjoy whose joy will be no stain yeah that one yeah i got the last bit yeah i don't know if you remember this but this is a declaration it's like i'm pressed but i'm not crushed i'm persecuted not abandoned struck down but not destroyed you've got to say struck down but not destroyed i'm blessed beyond this curse for his promise will endure and so we have this thing because we can cling to the promise of jesus that says we can conquer this. We can overcome this. We can come to him, the father who understands and knows the things that we feel and what we're going through. We can cling to him and hold on to his steadfast promise that we have him. You see, Jesus doesn't come to relieve the pressure, but he prepares the church to go through it. And this is so important. What the enemy has purposed for death, Jesus will bring to life. In his death and resurrection, we have life. Jesus never, ever promised us an easy life. But he did promise us that he will be with us, that he is for us, and that he's not against us. Keep your eyes on him. Pray at all times and stay faithful to him. I think I'm guilty of this. Is I'm an internal processor. So when I go through trials and tribulations and hard times, I tend to internalize everything. I tend to isolate myself from those around me. COVID was, the curse of COVID for me was isolation. It wasn't from sicknesses. It wasn't anything. It was the isolation. Because what happens in isolation is that we are alone, obviously. See, the enemy's tactic is always to isolate us. When we're going through trials and tribulations, we tend to think that it's just us. We don't want to inconvenience anyone else with our troubles or things that we're going through. If you think about it, Eve was most tempted when she was isolated from Adam. When we are alone, that is when the enemy comes, not just with temptations, but also with thoughts of worthlessness, questioning identity. When Jesus was in the desert, what did the enemy do? He came, he questioned identity. He said, if you are the son of God, son of God, then do this. If you are this, then do this. And so this thing of temptation and question of identity comes in. And if we're in isolation, it's so much easier for the enemy to come with these voices that drown out the promise of what God has given us. 
And this is why it's so important for us to stay in community with people. See, community makes it easier. I want to encourage you, if you're going through hard times, reach out to someone, anyone that can pray with you, that can encourage you, that can counsel you, that can help you, that can hold you accountable, that can go through scripture with you, that can talk to you, that can listen to you. Not just anyone, someone that you trust them. Because the point of community is for all of us to build and to edify each other and to point each other to Jesus. No trial, no tribulation is bigger than Jesus. Sometimes we wonder why is it that we need pressure? Why is it that we need trials? trials? Well, why do we go through these things? And I can tell you that olive oil doesn't just happen. It goes through a crushing process. The oil is squeezed out of those olives through a very painful process. Don't think of olives as grapefruit. Um, (laughs) But it's a painful process, but it produces something beautiful, something that is useful, not just one way, but many different ways. Wine, grapes. Grapes, to produce wine, go through a process. And it explained to us a few weeks ago that there's a crushing, there's a sifting, there's a thing that happens, it's a process that produces something beautiful. The fragrance of myrrh, it was a resin that came from the sap of the tree. It didn't just smell nice, it had to be crushed and had to be broken and ground into a paste to release the fragrance of the myrrh. Without pressure, we don't grow, we don't change, we don't develop into anything. So with pressure, God takes us and he produces character and endurance and faith. He uses these things to create a mature church. But it comes with a promise. And I don't know if you picked up on it. It says, in verse 17, it says, you are about to suffer. It's quite an encouragement. You're about to suffer. It's okay. And behold, the devil is going to throw some of you in jail. And you may be tested. But he goes and he says, for 10 days you will have tribulation. This was not a literal 10 days. If only all our trials and tribulations were marked by 10 days, that'd be amazing. Um, but this 10 days was a common phrase used in that time that just meant a short period of time. In the greater scheme of eternity, our trials are 10 days, short period. And I think it's so important for us to remember that in the light of what we go through, it's a short period. It may feel like years. It may feel like it's never-ending. It may drag on, and days feel like months, and weeks may feel like years, and it just feels like things are never-ending. But all of these things are for a short time. In the light of eternity, this is a small thing. In 2 Corinthians, it says, For this moment, light momentarily affliction is preparing for us. It's a short time. Um, One of the guys I was listening to says, Can you remember your tribulations from five years ago? What are the things you were going through? Can you remember what it was four years ago? What are the things you were suffering with? Are they still there or are they over? Did it last forever? There are some things that do go for years. There are some things that go for months. There are things that go for days. But in the scheme of eternity and in our lives, these things are temporary. There's a promise of an end. And these things prepare us for the eternal weight of glory. And Jesus says, 
when we go through these things, it's just a really case for people to give us the sign of life. So stay faithful, persevere, keep pushing into Jesus. These things are temporary and they build something of character in us. In the meantime, allow Jesus to minister to you. Allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through these things as you dig into the word, as you pray, as you seek him, as you worship, as you talk to those around you. Allow him to produce something beautiful in you. He's not going to take away those things, but he's going to help us through it. And I can tell you now, when the next thing comes, it's a, even, it looks like even a bigger mountain. Once you've come through that and you've got, got to the other side, you look back and it looks so small. And then the next thing starts to get wave after wave after wave. Things are going to come. But stay steadfast. Dig into Jesus. And then this comes with a promise in Revelation 2 verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by a second death. The one who conquers. In Romans 8, verse 35 to 37, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And in verse 37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved through tribulation, through distress, through persecution, through famine, through nakedness, through danger, through sword, through slander, through tribulation, through court cases, through persecution at work, through fights with the family, through all these things, nothing can separate us from Him because we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We do not conquer in our own strength. We try to fight these battles in our own strength. We get tired. We get burnt out. We get broken. We get bruised. But we conquer through Him who loved us first. So often in our trials and our tribulations and in slander, it's easy to believe that we are being punished or that we have done something silly. But what we can learn from the church in Smyrna is that even when we are faithful and we seem to be doing everything right and we've clung to our first love, we will face pressure. We will face trials. We will face these things. If not, even more so because we are doing these things. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. We are children of the King. The enemy does not take a place there. And he is going to come at us with everything he has. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. See, our faithfulness is really authentic to the Lord. And they will do anything and everything to try and discredit the faith in those who believe in Jesus. They will do anything to try and change the way we believe and what we believe about Jesus and the Bible that we read. The world will come and try and water down what we stand for or tell us that what we stand for is unloving and unkind. But that's exactly the opposite of what we are to show to the world. We are to show the world that we are loving and we are that we hold true to the standard of Jesus. We need to remain uncompromising and steadfast, remaining faithful even unto death. Because in that, we receive the crown of life, that the second death will not hurt us, and that we will be more than conquerors through him.
Schön auf dich zu stellen. I'm just going to pray a general prayer and I'm going to ask everyone to just close their eyes. And if, if you're one of those people that are going through some trial or tribulation of some sort, I'm just going to ask you to put your hand up. Just call this a receiving posture. Um, just put in your hand because you know God, I'm, I'm going through this. I'm going through these trials. Whether it's something that's seemingly insignificantly small, something that's overpowering in your emotions. I want to pray for us all. Father, I just want to thank you for this encouraging and challenging scripture, Father, you have called us to remain faithful. That in the midst of that, knowing that we will face trials, we will face persecution, we will face accusations, we will face things that are larger than life. And Father, I pray for each and every single one of us that may be going through something that is suffocating, something that is difficult, something that is overpowering, something that is just causing us to lose sleep at night, that is trying to rob us of our peace. And Father, I just pray that as we come to you, we submit these things to you, each one of us will seek to cover it under you. Father, your word says that you fight on our behalf. And so Father, I declare that we would do this as well. We stand on your promises knowing that you have been through tremendous crushing and trials and persecution to get to this point. But that you defeated death by that and you have conquered it. And you have given us the Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be with each one of us. I pray, Lord, that you would surround them, Father God, in the safety of your wings, as your word says. And Father God, I pray for strength. I pray for courage. I pray for perseverance and endurance and courage in this time. I pray, Lord, for wisdom. I pray for comfort. I pray for peace. I pray, Lord, that you would help us who aren't going through tribulations at the moment, to stand with those that are, to pray for them, to intercede for them, to, to encourage them and to love them. I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace and mercy as we stand at this day in time. So we thank you, Lord, that we may be pressed, but we are not crushed. We may be persecuted, but we are not oppressed. We may be struck down, but we will not be destroyed because you endure, Lord God. You have conquered death. And you have given us the power and the ability to be more than conquerors because you live inside us. And so we thank you for that and we stand in that. And I pray, Lord, that you would just come. As your word says, those who need wisdom should ask. And so, Father, we ask for wisdom in these trials, in these tribulations, in these things that we're facing, and knowing what to do and how to do it. And we thank you that you do this and you give this wisdom that's a spiritual mind that has to take, that you do it joyfully. 